This is the Strode College Digital T Level podcast. Legislation then, 8, 8.1. Obviously, this in the exams when you do the write up, this stuff is going to come through all the other areas that you're looking at. Right? Everything is related to legislation at some point. We're all law abiding citizens, I hope, for the most part. Um, yeah. So legislation, regulation, there are requirements. Most of these are based on historical things that evolve over time, and some of them are quite dated, but you know, things don't change. Health and Safety at Work Act came out in the 70s, and it hasn't really changed a great deal since then, albeit uh, it has been modified, because obviously some of the health and safety issues within jobs in the 1970s are not necessarily as relevant today, because most people are working on computers, so they've been modified slightly. But the underlying health factors i.e. working in dangerous environments, has not changed or shouldn't have changed. Um, so there are, and there are subsections of this. The overall act protects you in a working environment. So if you have an accident at work, which isn't your fault, then it is the company that is liable to actually give you some sort of compensation. So if you have some accident at work that, that renders you unable to do a work anymore, then the company or the government should then fund you to, so that you're not out of the, the ability to look after yourself and you know, uh, do your, live your life anymore. So Health and Safety at Work Act 74 includes the working at heights regulations. So again, there's various posters and things. I mean, a lot of this stuff should be fairly obvious, but you know, people don't necessarily, because of convenience, people don't necessarily do it. Last year, I was talking, I think I was teaching some um, engineering students about health and safety and I looked out the window and there was some guy on the top of a ladder leaning over with a chainsaw cut in the hedge like this. Oh, come on. I said, it's health and safety working at height. Obviously, I hadn't read the rules. But it should be obvious. But, you know, if you're, if you're working at height on ladders and things and you have, there's certain security protocols you need to be doing, there should be two people, etc. Et so there's various rules and regulations. Some of this applies to your support stuff. But again, in terms of, of your support roles, should you go to take this into further life, you shouldn't be working, you know, some of the stuff you use, if you're cleaning computers, some of the solvents and things are quite toxic, right? So have you been given safety equipment to make sure you're not breathing in really dangerous fumes? That type of thing. Uh, manual handling operations, regulation 1992, above a certain weight, it's probably about 25 kilos or something, you're supposed to have support. So again, if you were to be asked at a workplace, if they ask you to move an object and that box happens to be too long or too heavy, you can deny and say, no, that's against the regulations. I need help or you're going to have to do it with equipment or something. Right? So that's, you are protected in those. Whether you use those protections is up to you. Management, Health and Safety at Work Regulations, 1999. So again, they've been updated and modified, saying, you know, and work practices change, don't they? Will they change? How, how are you protected in health and safety if you're working from home, which most people are these days? If you have an accident at home, but it's during your working hours, which they're paying you for, is it your responsibility or theirs? There's some grey areas appearing because of this you know, move to work from home. And then health and safety, this one relates to us, I think, display screen equipment regulations in 92. Quite interesting, really, because if, if I remember 1992, the first computer I got was, or the first computer I worked on was 90, was actually 89, but it was just a, a terminal. It was part, part of a mainframe terminal. Um, and the actual screen refresh rate was probably about five hertz or something. So it was probably really bad for your eyes. But... Around about 92, most monitors were 25, 30 hertz refresh rate. 
those CRTs because it was the early days of technology. So that law came out to protect people from staring at those screens too much because at, at that refresh rate, anything below 60, 70 hertz, and it gives you a real headache. If you're doing it eight hours a day, it's really doing you in. So that's why these, again, that's why some of these are a bit historical and they're probably not used anymore. These days, I mean, these computers in here are 144 hertz. So you're not going to be seeing. The hertz is how quickly it refreshes each second. So below 60 a second, and your brain can pick it up even if you don't see it. It still looks like a continuous picture, but it's, it's actually 60 pictures every second. Um, and it gets it going. Your brain is actually working on it. It's making you really tired and your eyes and everything. So that's that came about. But again, that's still, still in effect in 1992, but they probably added some supplementary things to it. So these laws have these little sub-clauses. Um, how do we deal with those? Adequate training. If you go to a company, you'll have health and safety training. If there is, if you are working in a support environment and you are looking after machines that are heavy or dangerous, again, how many of you have taken your computer apart? Every time I've worked on a computer, I've scratched myself. I, I, I don't know how, but you know, I've tried to avoid those things. But every time you open up those computers, all those, all those little pieces that are soldered onto the motherboard have tiny little metal spikes come out the top of them and you catch your finger on them every single time. So again, adequate training. And if you're working with, um, if you're working on computers, and again, if you're using solvents, a lot of those solvents that are used on computers and cleaning them are quite toxic. You know, they're toxic for your skin and for, certainly for breathing. So have you been trained properly in terms of safety? Uh, adequate welfare provision for work staff. You should... If you're working in any environment, again, this is, you'll have to pick this up later on when you are working, you're, you're, you're allowed by law to have breaks every certain amount of time. You can't work for eight hours solid, or you shouldn't. You're allowed to break every couple of hours, 15 minutes every, every hour, I think, or every two hours, something along those lines. Right? And again, if it really depends on how uh, proactive you are about this stuff, but you are protected in law from being abused at work, or you should be, and you should know what your rights are. Um, safe working environment is properly maintained. Again, you know, if you come into an environment and there's loose cables all over the shop, as you'll find out in CTO 2 tomorrow, there's cables everywhere. Keep asking them to fix it, but they haven't. So how properly maintained is it? These are your rights. If you have an accident because there's cables that line all over the place, it isn't your fault, and they are liable to actually have some sort of prosecution, I suppose. Uh, suitable provision, relevant information, instruction, supervision. So... Most organisations should have posters up. They should have where the fire exits are, how to use the fire extinguishers, all those things. So it's just general support and safety. Right, so that's the first one. Health and Safety at Work Act and supplementary things. We've then got the what was called the RIP Act. that came in in 2016. Investigating powers. Now, again, I've told you about this before. The government brought this in. They are strengthening it. Yesterday, they strengthened it in a supplementary way by introducing the Police Powers Act, you can no longer uh, basically protest. That's been outlawed. The government passed a law last night um, that if you protest in any way, shape or form, you will be prosecuted, right? So it's no longer, even though we're in a democracy, you are no longer allowed to complain about it, which was a democratic right. It no longer is. Uh, investigative powers, and if you are sending emails back and forth, all of those emails are by law picked up by the GCHQ, and if they want to, they can look for certain patterns within them and they can prosecute you. And that was part of the law that came in 2016. Mm -hmm. So it enhances powers for law enforcement. The argument is, obviously, they want to intercept the, the key thing they're looking for, 
because of the actual the bombing that happened in Manchester, the bombing that happened in London, 2007, etc., etc., mainly looking for terrorist acts. Um, that's the, the argument they make. But again, you know, like all of these acts, they can be abused. So if they, if they want to target certain people, they will by using that RIP Act or Investigative Powers. Uh, highlights the way in which new powers authorised and overseen and ensures powers are fit for the digital age. So again, part of this government is looking into, you know, can organisations have you know, pornographic material, etc., etc., and how can they police that stuff and do something about it eventually? Right? And the way they do that is to actually pick up every single communication and look for certain words in there or files that are attached, etc., and they can do that for anyone. There is no protection against that as a citizen. They can look at all of your emails, all your communications, everything. They are pushing us slightly harder. And again, different countries have different rules. So um, they're trying to push harder for internet service providers to basically act like the police and tell the police when they find people that are doing things they shouldn't. Uh, Freedom of Information Act. Because of the Freedom of Information Act, in theory... If you don't like some piece of information that you find in the public domain, or if you hear some rumour, or if you just want to find out what the government is up to, you can place for free a Freedom of Information Act. So you can actually go, you can write to the Freedom of Information uh, Bureau and say, I want information about what the government was doing in 1992 on such and such a topic. They have to release that unless they can prove that it's against national interest to release that information. But you can find information. So again... If you wanted to, you could go back to, like if you're researching your family ancestry and you find out there's a sort of a, a myth about your family back from the 1940s, you can write to the government and say, can you tell me about this person in this particular context? And they'll have to release it as part of the Freedom of Information Act. So it gives you the rights and abilities to question what goes on in government in a way. But again, there are caveats. If they think it's against national security, they won't allow it. Uh, then members of the public are entitled to request information from public authorities. So again, if you want to go to, um, if for if you are unfortunate enough not to get a job and, and you're on the dole, um, you can find out information that they've kept about you. And, you. and again, as part of, as an extension of this, because of the GDPR, you can ask to be removed if it's appropriate. Right? So you've got the freedom to check what people have on you in public bodies and question it and challenge it if need be. So again, and, and this is... The, the, the thing would be some people, there are some cases going around, somebody, you know, some people go to get jobs and job after job after job, they get refused. So you do a freedom of information request and you find out that by accident that they basically added all these criminal records onto your record. And you don't, you're not aware of it, but you can't get a job. So that's why it's quite useful having that type of power. Uh, then we've got the Computer Misuse Act. Unauthorised access to computer programmes. So again, on the exam, that's a sort of generic question. What is the Computer Misuse Act? What does it define? How is it defined? What does it explain? Um, so unauthorised access. So if you're not allowed to go on a computer and you go onto it, then you're violating the Computer Misuse Act. And if you do something on there, particularly if you try to do it for criminal purposes, so if you go on and use a computer in order to defraud somebody, or if you're using it to do um, fishing or farming activities, etc., then you are in, in breach of the Computer Misuse Act and you can be prosecuted for that. And again, there are various, um, various cases you can read about and what sort of crimes and what sort of punishments they get. And depending on how badly you do it, the, the crimes, you know, the, the actual punishment can't go up to sort of 10 years in prison, massive fines, etc. But it really depends. Um, so there are a bit more supplementary stuff. So unauthorised access with further criminal intent. So again, if you're getting into, and this is 
like social engineering. If you're getting into a system with the intention of four or five years' time defrauding somebody, then you can do that. Um, and then unauthorised modification of computer material. So again, if, if you go onto a site and you change material, which you haven't been authorised to do, then you are in breach of this and you can be prosecuted if people can you know, get the information against you. Uh, Digital Economy Act 2017, Regulation of Communication Infrastructure. I did say about this one, this is the one that gives you the right to demand 10 megabit connection as a minimum. That is the law at the moment. Um, so, Regulation of Communication Infrastructure and Services. This is, at the moment, the government would use this, or local authorities might say, um, for example, you could as a local authority say, because of the, this Communication Act, we don't have good coverage in our area, so we demand that the local council put up a, a satellite dish or something to give us internet connectivity. So you can use these laws in order to protect yourself in certain ways. Or the other side of it is people can come after you because you're violating these laws. Uh, public sector bodies, uh, accessibility regulation. Who doesn't know about that one? Make clear the level of accessibility required across website or application. Actually, that's the one that, that gives you 10 megabits of connectivity. Uh, fairly recent law. Again, that will change, I suppose, over time. They may modify that and say, you know, if the baseline gets higher, then your expectation will get more. Copyrights, designs and patents. If you come up with a brilliant idea, you really should patent it or copyright it to make sure people don't steal it. If it is copyrighted, then you can go after people if they do steal your idea or take money from you of something that is your invention. Um, and if you patent something, it means that if people use your design to make something else, they have to pay you some type of money back for that. And those things last a long, long time. Um, I'm currently a friend of a family is a, is a pop star from the 60s, and he's still getting... Most of his money comes from stuff he did in the 60s because people still use his stuff. And some of the songs that he wrote are still used by other bands, and they're, they're reproduced and they're remade and stuff. So, again, he lives off of those royalties. So they go on and on, for, I think, for 75 years. Um, so protect intellectual property rights again if you take somebody's idea if you download somebody's software without paying for it you're basically stealing their, their revenue and you can be prosecuted under this act um, and it enables how that material can be used so if you, you, might, you might produce something and again the, the alternative to this is open source tends to be copy left they say. they say you can take this material you can use it however you want but if you improve it, then give it back to the community so everyone benefits from that improvement. Uh, then we've got Waste Electrical Electronic Equipment, or the WEE Directive. came out in 2012. This is because of the increasing numbers of these phones and computers and devices. And again, most people have a computer for two or three years, then they basically get rid of it, don't they? So what happens to that once they've got rid of it? Um, if you remember, loads of those... those before the holidays, I picked up those 10 laptops. Those, those were going straight in the skip. Right. So the college was just going to throw them in the skip. That was their plan. And that, everyone does that. So what, what happens to that stuff? It's full of lead. It's full of mercury, all sorts of poisonous stuff. If that stuff just gets chucked into the actual tips, grad, gradually it's going to leak through the actual ground into the water, and we're going to be drinking that stuff. And again, mercury stays in your blood forever, and it gets to a level in your liver where it poisons you, so it's a collective thing. So we need to protect ourselves against these long-term damages. So the, the WE directive, again, it really depends. Some councils are different from others, but if you go... Has anyone been to the local council tips to dump stuff away? Yeah. 
if you do go, they've got various sort of skips for different, you know, paper, wood, blah, blah, blah. But in, usually they have a corner where you can actually dump off computer equipment and they'll break it down, they'll melt it down to get out the different metals and things like that. Uh, and they'll recycle it into its constituents and try and get rid of the poisons. And that's part of the weed directive. And initially, when it first came out in 2012, the government gave loads of money for you to dispose of this equipment, so it was quite lucrative. It's not anymore, but again, those compute. If you get, if you had millions and millions of motherboards, you could extract a fair bit of gold out of them. You know, not not a massive amount, but it'd be a decent amount. Data Protection Act 2018 was the most recent uh, modification, and I think it was modified because the com- the government had adopted the GDPR from Europe. Obviously, that's subsequently. I don't know, it's in a bit of limbo land. Um, and the Data Protection Act is a sort of scaled-down version of GDPR. So Because we moved out of Europe, it's no longer 100% relevant, I suppose. So the GDPR, very strong fines, very strong protections. And I did mention before that it's quite strong compared to the American principle. So again, so a lot of the American companies are not allowed to store European people's data because it doesn't comply with the GDPR. Um, and some big American companies are being taken to court and fined by the European government because their data protection is not good enough. So again, those laws depend. And the actual, I don't, it, it, it may still be enforced, I can't remember, but the GDPR has a massive fine. It's 20, 20 million euro fine if you breach it, right? Or 10% of your total turnover. So if you're a massive multi-global multi, multi uh, company, 10% of your outlet turnover is going to be billions and billions. So they're you know, very hot on this stuff. Whether you can enforce it, I don't know. Uh, European Convention on Human Rights, Article 8, the right to respect family and private life. Again, internationally, if you think about laws, there are local laws, there are national laws and international laws. Uh, the European Convention on Human Rights is a basic protection against people abusing you as an individual. You have the right to privacy at some point, so how do you protect against that? Uh, the GDPR, the key points of it, it protects. Uh, these are the, again, questions on the exam almost certainly will be related to GDPR or the Data Protection Act. These eight principles you need to uh, memorise to some extent, if you can, because they will come up. So the first one, the data that is kept about you needs to be lawfully, i.e. they told you why they were taking it, it needs to be fair, it should be excessive, um, and it needs to be transparent. If you want to see it, you should be able to see it. So first of all, those are the key principles. Anything kept on you needs to be done that. You can go to the college and ask them what data they've got on you. Most of it you can see on your student advantage, but you, you've got the ability to do that because of the GDPR. Uh, it has a purpose limitation. So if I gather data about you now in order to help you with this exam, those of you that still want to do it, um, in 10 years' time, I can't hold on to that data and use it to blackmail you for some purpose. I probably will. So purpose limitation. I collect the data for a purpose, and once that purpose has been achieved, I have to delete and remove that data, and you've got the right to ask me to get rid of it. Uh, Data minimisation. If I'm collecting data to help you towards your exams, I don't need to be asking you all sorts of personal data about your personal life. That's not part of what I need to do in order for this particular process. So there's a limitation on that. It needs to be accurate. Every now and again, the college will ask you, is this your correct email? Is this your correct phone number? Is this the correct phone number for your home address, etc.? So it has to be accurate. 
uh, it needs to be stored for a certain period of time. Your data materials shouldn't be kept too long in the college. I think a couple of years after you leave, in case you need to query something, but we cannot hang on to your data forever. It's no other organisation. If you have a part-time job and you leave that part-time job, they cannot hang on to your private data for any period of time beyond what they said they would. That's got to be a storage limitation. Integrity and confidentiality. If they're taking your personal data, they've got to secure it. And if there is a security breach, they are liable and you can sue them. Which makes sense. And they can't be, you know, oh, I've got some great stuff on this person that I got off their database today. They can't go home and talk about it and tell people all these things, you know, put it up on Facebook or whatever. So it's got to be confidential. Accountability. Somebody has to be accountable at the end of the day. If there's a data breach, there is a data registrar or whatever that needs to be held accountable. If you are looking after some sort of small club and you're looking after people's details, then you are the responsible one. If there's a data breach, you're the one that's in court. Um, and sort of related to that, I guess, is data security. So you, you are, have to make sure this stuff is secure. And most of the stuff, well, all of the stuff on you in college is kept in a secure data room, which I don't have the key to. It's over there in A block somewhere. All right, so that's all fairly secure. That should be. Uh, Electronic Communication Privacy Act. 1986, um, this is about wiretapping, etc. Now, that, this, is, this is the thing about caveats. In the United States, although that law came in after that, in the 1970s, the US president was impeached because he was tapping people's wires in, in the... He was part of the Republican Party, he was tapping the wires of the Democratic Party, and he got caught, and he had to confess, and he had to resign as president before he went to court. Right. As a result of that, they brought in this Electronic Communication Privacy Act, basically saying that America can't tap wires. They still do, obviously, but they can't by law. So you can, if you can prove it, and if they, if they don't argue that it's in the national security, then you can take them to court about it, and you are protected by this act. Uh, I don't know why we've got these ones, anyway. Controlling the assault of non-solicited pornography and marketing. Can Spam Act 2003. Um, gives you the right to unsubscribe to things. Now, that's a, one of the key things, again, one of the key things I like about the GDPR is if see, people send you spam, every spam email they send at the bottom, it has to have an unsubscribe key and it has to unsubscribe you or you can take them to court. Now, with America, that is not a requirement. So if you, if you sign up for some American website, you'll get spam forever and you can't stop it. Just to be aware. Right. Any questions? That's 8.1. That's the generic laws and bits and pieces. Right, so there's various types of questions there. There's, there's definitely going to be define four or five parts of the data protection action. You need to know all eight of them roughly. You do need to memorise those. And then there's going to be more generic things like, in this particular case, how would this act apply? So you can say, well, it's going to protect them against this or they can re require the company to do this, etc. Right? 8.2. Given that there are all these laws... Um, what do they do and how do they help us? So obviously you've got criminal law, industry standards and codes of conduct in different levels of things. So obviously uh, law is, is the default thing, isn't it? It protects you no matter what, it goes to court. Industry standards are sort of norms. If you go into an industry standard, they expect you to wear a suit, then you should wear a suit for argument's sake. It's just a norm. You don't have to, but that's the expectation. It's a norm rather than law. They're not going to fire you for not wearing a suit. They just expect you to do that, probably. And then professional codes of conduct. Again, when you're on a phone to customers, you know, there's an expectation about how you treat them. 
formally or informally. So there's different levels of legality, I suppose. So up the top, we've got criminal law. Criminal law in the sense that if you violate those in any way, shape or form, you will be fined or prisoned or whatever, some type of sanction. So you've got national laws, first of all, and the purpose of those. So there may be a question saying, what is the purpose of laws? So the main purpose is obviously to maintain order. If we did live in a system of anarchy, it would be quite fun for some people, but not everyone. But if you just do whatever you want, like Mad Max, it could go horribly wrong for some. Look that one up. Right, maintain order. So if we don't have laws, <laughs> if we didn't have laws about um, conduct within certain environments, then people do whatever they want, wouldn't they? They'd come into lessons, just sit on their phone all the time when you're chatting away. Because there'd be no order. Uh, it resolves disputes. If, if I go to somebody and say um, that piece, like with your neighbour, if, you if you're lucky enough, you probably won't be your generation, but if you're lucky enough to buy a house you're probably at some stage going to have a dispute with your neighbour. Now, when you buy a house, the left-hand side of your back garden is your responsibility. So if the fence gets blown over, you're the one that has to pay to have it fixed. But if you decide you don't want to do that, then you're going to get a dispute and the neighbour's going to say, well, that's the law, and you'd have to take it to court to fight it through. Right, so it resolves disputes. So you can say, well, according to, the, according to these uh, Plot, land plot things, that's your responsibility, so you need to fix that fence. I'll fix it if it breaks on this side. So again, it resolves di disputes, doesn't it? That's the purpose of law. Uh, the other purpose protects individuals and property. So again, if, if somebody crashes into my car, then I, the law will protect me against that. As long as I can prove that it was their fault, then obviously their insurance or whatever will pay for that damage. So the law, the criminal law, national laws protect you against that type of damage and criminality. And it's safeguards your civil liberty. Again, not quite so clear anymore after this act was, was uh, turned over last night. You cannot protest anymore in public um, if it creates a noise or dis disruption. But you should be protected. So if I want to, there's nothing to stop me going out at night if I want to, just wandering the streets. Nobody should stop me from doing that. Now, as, a, as opposed to that, when I lived in the States, the first time I lived in the States, I went to school in Iowa, which was Redneck Central, um, I wasn't aware, I was 14, I wasn't aware that there was a curfew, right? There was a nine o'clock curfew in my town. I went out riding my bike around, I got arrested by the police with guns, took to the police station, questioned, they were threatening me with guns and all sorts, because I'd violated the curfew. I was not aware. Right, so, but that's civil liberty, they're, they're slightly different interpretation. That's to keep the streets safe because nobody's on the streets. Right, so that's national laws. That's decided by our government. So when you vote in May in the local elections, that's what you're voting for. Those of you like Bailey that are 18, that will exercise your democratic rights in May. <laughs> international laws. Hey, they're all 18 as well. Right. Don't use it, don't lose it. Right, international laws, they govern offences committed outside the UK, uh, industry standard, professional codes of conduct, etc. So, again, if at the moment, because um, of GDPR, it's, an international, it, it's, it's a sort of international law in the sense that anyone that deals with the European bloc, which is one of the biggest trading blocs, has to abide by their laws. So it's sort of international. So at the moment, lots of American companies are being sued by the European Union 
And I told you, I think before the holidays, Google have now been told by the European Court that they cannot use their analytics in the European bloc because it violates individual privacy. I don't want Google and analysing everything I do, where I go and why I do all these things, all the things I buy, and the European law agrees with me and they've stopped Google being operating in the European Union, which is going to cost them quite a bit. Uh, the other side of international law is about compliance. So again, an exam question might be define compliance or give an example of compliance. Anyone? What does it mean to be compliant? Yeah, do as you're told, abide by the rules. Compliance means that there's some sort of expectation and you abide by that expectation. Um, facilitating competition with industry. So again, some of the laws are, and again, as an extreme example, in the, at the end of the First World War, um, the European powers that obviously won, or the European and American powers that won the First World War, sat down and they drafted up an agreement saying, if we go to war again, you cannot make these types of weapons, these types of weapons, etc., etc. And one of the things in terms of uh, competition was that they said, there is, they said there was a sort of limitation on how big you can make your ships. That was stipulated mainly by the UK because it was a naval power. And again, in the Second World War, one of the key things Germany did was just, just say, we're not going to follow that and we're going to make these massive battleships. But again, if, if you work towards international standards and regulations and it makes a level playing field, and increasingly um, that's quite useful in terms of competition. So it's no point uh, trying to compete against people if they've got something that's ten times better than what you've got. So within reason, you try to regulate that stuff. Uh, promoting innovation, international laws should protect people in terms of copyright and licensing to make sure that people can actually make ideas and make them worthwhile. Otherwise, nobody would bother. Uh, providing interoperability between new and existing systems. We've talked before about standards, right? If whatever phone you use, you would hope that it works with every other phone. It's no good if you've got a phone and none of your friends have exactly the identical phone, you would still expect to be able to communicate with them, and you can because of standards. So providing interoperability and standards means that stuff just works. So that's part of international law. What's the international organisation that maintains those standards? Anyone remember? What organisation maintains international standards? The ISO, the International Standards Organization. Imperial Service Order. <laughs> uh, ensuring security, so internationals um, protect things against it. So again, a really simplistic thing about international security, as an example, is when you send a package from A to B, nobody's going to steal it in between, well, within reason. Some, some of those stuff goes missing. And then ensuring transparency of sectors. Transparency of sectors, what does that mean? In theory, at least. Transparency of sectors. If that term, if it, if it came up in the exam, how would you define that? What is transparency of sectors? What is a sector? Industry. An industry, a group of industries or a style of industries. Transparency? Clear communication. Yeah, see what's going on. So no, no organisation, most countries would be told to at least publicly show what companies are up to so that there's nothing other, other than trade secrets. So should so we're roughly working in the financial sector. This is what we do. We offer these services. Nothing should be nothing should be opaque and hidden. There are certain things that are, but again, in terms of business this is there shouldn't be anything hidden and that's part of international law. So 
international law, for arguments, for, for interest, if you look at a company, a big company, if I went to IBM on their website because of international laws, I can download all the reports about what they're doing, what their turnover is, what sort of activities they're involved in, what companies they buy and own, etc., etc. That transparency allows me to make decisions about that company if I want to invest in them or buy their products. I'm not going to invest necessarily in a company that, that doesn't have that transparency. Now, again, there's always caveats for this. A lot of this stuff is hidden, isn't it? We talked about it before. My, uh, Apple got sued fairly recently because they're... A lot of their companies they were using were, were basically sweatshops and people were committing suicide because the work rate was so awful. Right? So in terms of transparency, that's, that should be reported, but it isn't. Yeah. And, and Amazon are very are getting lots of companies, lots of states, because in America is a state-based system because each state is slightly different from the national. Uh, a lot of independent states are now setting up unions in Amazon because to try and protect the workers because their working conditions are really bad. Right? So that's 8.2. Any questions on that one? Nothing. All right. So clear, is it? 8.3. Where to access industry standards and professional codes of conduct? So given that there are all these rules and regulations and codes of conduct, where do we find them? Or where can we find them? First of all, industry standards are part of the ISO. May well come up on the exam. I think it did come up on a practice exam, didn't it? Um, and we'll do some more of those after these ESPs out of the way, by the way. Right, so the ISO, International Standards Organization, says if you want to make a phone, these are the specifications it needs to meet. If you want to make a router, this is the specification you need to meet in order to other people can use it. Right? So the ISO gives generic standards about the way things work. One of the key things in the ISO at the moment, which is quite a popular one, is the International Standards for Cybersecurity. So if you are going to set up an organisation and protect it, these are the standards you need to do in order to make sure it's not violated by some sort of hackers. Uh, we've then got the Internet Engineering Task Force. So anything that is engineered, anything that is made like phones, like laptops, like tablets, like Steam Decks, would be, the actual engineering involved in it would be determined by this organisation, the IETF. Um, now these are some of the things they do. So if, if you're looking on forums, if you go onto forums and you're looking for software downloads to update your laptops or whatever, you may well come across RFCs. So these international standard organisations create RFCs. So they create a bit of code or a set of instructions. And then obviously people modify it and say, oh, no, that doesn't work. You need to change it. It's like, no, no, that changed. Change it, change it. Whenever they change it, they, they do these RFCs. So request for clarification. Say, in your statement about this piece of hardware, you say that it will do this and this. Do you mean that it is six gigahertz or whatever? So you ask for clarification in order to engineer it better. That's how those work. Um, the I, uh, EIA, TIA, Electronic Industries Alliance, Telecommunications Industry. So this is an organisation that determines how you send signals across uh, different platforms. So if you look at those radio antennas that are outside that send electricity, they'll be set to certain standards and they should be relatively international in the way that they transmit data. So I would imagine, even though the frequencies may be slightly different, the things that the way that they work, if you go to America or any other country, those, those telephone cables will be fairly similar, or the electric pylons, how they carry signals would be determined by the EIA more than likely. 
Uh, British standards, if you look in, sometimes like in your clothes on the labels, it might have a BS1352 or something like that. Made to British standards, anyone? Might be on the bottom of your laptops, might be on your phones. Certain things are set to certain things. It says BS15682 or something. So it's a standard that's been established for that thing. And there probably is a British standard for a T-shirt design, for example. Right, a lot of clothes have a BS thing labelled inside. Right, so that's British standard. So that is, that is a guarantee from the British Standards Authority that, that that product has been made to a certain quality standard. Right? Uh, Institute for Electrical Electronic Engineers, the IEEE, they determine how Wi-Fi works and how the internet functions in terms of Ethernet capability. So those are standards determined by the IEEE. Uh, Payment Card Industry Security Standards Council. Again, if you're using payment cards, can you standardise it? If I use my payment card and I go to a a terminal and it doesn't work, I'm going to be pretty annoyed. So are there standards so that every shop I go to, it works no matter what? My card should work wherever I go. And again, that doesn't work without standards. If I I decide to make my own terminal, because I can do it and solder up some little terminal... How do I know it's going to work with every customer that comes in? I'm going to lose a lot of business when people come in and it doesn't work. So if I work towards this PCI SC standard, I know that people will be able to buy my products using electronic card payment systems. Uh, British Computer Society, that question did come up on our mock exam, didn't it? So the, the BCS is the, the organisation which advises government and industry on how computers should work. And they've got standards on it. So again, if you work... If you work in support in four or five years' time, it would be advisable to join up to the BCS because they do give... One of the key things that things like BCS do is give you insurance protection. You sign up for the BCS. If you have a problem at work, which is computer-related, they will protect you. Wealthy. Uh, Institute of Analysis Programmers. Again, standards about how you do programming. Make sure you do it to the right sort of stand. All of these are for interoperability. If you do not follow standards, then it doesn't matter what... You may have a beautiful piece of software, but if it doesn't follow conventions, it won't work with any other products, and you'll be there selling it to your one customer that it works for when everyone else walks past. So, again, standards are quite useful. And then the Chartered Institute of Information Security. So if you do go into a security-related job in the future, that may be an organisation you might need to sign up for or with. Um... Right, so that's 8.3 is just the different organisations that make sure all this stuff works together. So there'll be questions, might be questions saying, what does this IEEE stand for? What do they do? What does, how does organisation protect? How are standards implemented? How are they protected? How are they disseminated? All of those organisations listed on there have websites with policies and procedures which explain exactly what they do, why, how, etc., and what you can do in order when you join them. Um, 8.4... The importance of keeping up to date with UK international legislation. So again, because there's all these laws and regulations, how do you keep up to date with them and what will happen if you don't? Well, we know the law anyway. So why are they important? If your business does not comply with some of these international standards, A, you might be sued by your customers because you broke, they've had some accident because your equipment's not safe. So it's probably worth following these laws. And B, if you lose your reputation you lose a lot of business, don't you? So again, it's worth following these standards because that means it's protecting you a bit. Uh, It's protection for customers. If you make your equipment to a standard, which everyone else uses, 
and that standard has health and safety built into it, hopefully your customers won't be cutting their fingers by using your tablets because they've not been designed with sort of rounded edges, etc. Right, about standards and safety. Uh, and it avoids consequence of non-compliance. Non-compliance generally tends to large, get large fines or prison sentences. So being compliant is not a bad thing. Uh, potential consequences of non-compliance. So if you are not compliant, if you don't follow the rules, what happens? Well, first of all, there's financial. You can get fines. And again, the GDPR is 20 million euros or 10% of your turnover. That's quite a lot. And over time, loss of business. So if you do get, like we talked about it before, Talk Talk got hacked um, in 2007. They lost a third of their business. They got fined £400 million. And uh, probably they've, they're probably not back to the level they were in 2007. So it has big consequences. Uh, the other consequences of non-compliance are legal, getting prosecuted. If you create a product which you know, hurts people, then you're going to get prosecuted and you will be held liable, your company. Um, and prosecution tends to be quite expensive, right? Lawyers charge hundreds of pounds an hour um, and they tend to fight things for as long as possible in order to maximise that income. So if you get prosecuted, it goes on and on and on and you end up having nothing left and out on the street. So again, it's worth defending yourself. Uh, the other side of it, code of conduct-wise, professionally, it just looks good. If you don't um, follow these rules and regulations, you might lose your job, right? So if you're in a if you're in a company and you don't follow standards, then there's no reason why people people could just fire you. If you follow those standards, then you've got some sort of protection. If the company decides to fire you, and you can say, well, what's the reason for that? And they say, well, it's because you did this and this. You said, you know, there's no evidence of that. I followed all the rules and regulations. If it's that they just don't like you, they cannot fire you for that reason. They have to have a legitimate reason. So again, in terms of professional conduct, it just means you're protected in terms of your employment and protect yourself. Um, and professionally, so revoke responsibilities. If you don't follow those rules and regulations, they might say, look, I've given you opportunity, but you're just not following the standards I expect of you, so I'm going to demote you down to a lower level and start paying you less, because that's all you're worth. So it's worth following those standards. And then for a company, reputational, if you lose your brand, you tend to lose customers and money, right? Um, so brand damage is quite bad. There was a big hit, I think, did I, I think I forwarded it to Apple two or three weeks ago. Uh, two or three weeks ago, they they didn't they didn't um, publish their their overall accounts reports. For, there was a weird reason for it, but they didn't publish their accounts when they were supposed to. So everyone read into it that there was a problem with Apple and sold all their shares. They lost billions within a couple of weeks, and then they and then they finally published it. So again, some of these things have really big impacts. Uh, brand damage is quite bad. If people started to see. Apple phones has been, you know, in some way bad, and people stop buying them. You know, that's their income, gone, isn't it? So brand damage is quite bad. No. Customer perception: if people think that you're a bad company or your service is poor, they're just not going to use you, right? And just as a really simple case, which I probably most of you feel the same way, but if I go to a website and it takes me forever to find something, or something annoying comes up, I'll just use somebody else. So they lose business as a result of not following standards. Uh, and customer perception is, if you think that customer's not very good, you'll tell all your friends not to use them as well. So that's quite bad in the long term. Uh, and then sector-specific consequences. 
uh, health, education, retail, hospitality. So the reputation, again, if your company is seen as a good company to work for, it gives good health benefits, um, they give you good training, and their hospitality is great, then that company is going to get more and more business. Yeah? And I used the example I've used before, that company in Manchester, they take you on holiday once a year, they've got, you know, they've got gymnasium on every floor, they don't care if you take two hours a day to go and work in the gym, as long as you get your job done. That's the sort of company you want to work for, isn't it? And again, if other companies that squeeze the life out of you, I mean, again, a lot of people in uh, protesting against Amazon because they won't allow you to take toilet breaks, so people have to carry a bottle around to go to the toilet in. Right? That's not a good company to work for. So those types of reputational things, if that stuff gets out, you don't want to work for them, uh, and that's the end of it. Any questions? Thank you for listening to our podcast. Hopefully you learned something. If you didn't, listen to it again. You might actually learn.